Welcome to the Trinity Radio Podcast. This podcast has a video component found at youtube.com slash Braxton Hunter. This means you might miss some visual aspects of the show, but it shouldn't have a serious negative effect. We'd love it if you'd run over to the YouTube channel real quick and subscribe. And if you enjoy this content, do us a favor. Take a moment to give us a five-star review on iTunes and mention a couple of things you like about the podcast. If you really appreciate the show, you can help make it better and get extra content for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash trinity radio. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm so glad that you're here. And today we're going to be taking a look at an interesting topic. And I just want to say ahead of time, you don't have to have seen anything that came before this to benefit from this video, I don't think. But this is in a series through the book of Genesis. For the past several years, I've been creating a series of um, discussions, uh, audio, now video through the book of Genesis and uh, trying to grapple with what is the book of Genesis about, what's going on in each chapter. And it's a verse by verse study. And even though it's a verse by verse study that's just explaining the text, it has an eye toward apologetics. So if in any text you come up upon something that could be a criticism of Christianity, a, an alleged contradiction or something like that, we cover that as well. But today we're coming to Genesis chapter 34, which is very, very interesting passage of scripture as Jacob and his family have come to this new place called Shechem. And what we're looking at specifically here is the reactions that we have to wrongdoing, the reaction that Jacob and his family have to a great evil that has been done. And uh, I think that there's more we can do beyond just reading through this text and commenting on it. I think that there is, though this is not a sermon, an application for your life and for my life as we think about what our reaction to injustice should be. And so I think there's going to be a great benefit for this. And this is a passage that doesn't preach very well. At least I don't think a lot of people think that it does. Not a lot of pastors want to tackle this subject. It seems obscure. It seems like maybe some of the content is a little bit uh, mature audiences only. And so I, I think it's, it's going to be an interesting one for us. And so we'll take a look at it. Uh, but when we talk about this, Jacob in this story underreacts in response to a great evil that has been done to his daughter. But I think that at least two of his sons overreact to this evil that has been done. And so it's important for us to try and recognize that there is a balance that we have to meet. There is an appropriate response that needs to come from the appropriate place in our heart and in our thinking when injustice exists in our world. And frankly, this is a great time to talk about injustice. Right now, we are, as I record this, um, the United States and the whole world is experiencing the ramifications of a pandemic. On top of that, just yesterday, as of this recording, there were individuals in the midst of a protest that became a riot, I suppose, that that these individuals burst into uh, the Capitol building. And so it was a very tense moment. And it's a tense moment in our nation and in the world right now. And there are cries of injustice all around. And so how are we as believers supposed to react when injustice comes like this, recognizing that we serve a God who is a God of justice and the justice that he brings is always going to be appropriate justice. And so we're going to take a look at that. Now, I think we all know as we before we jump into the text here, I think we all kind of recognize what it's like to sense that there is an injustice happening 
and to feel maybe a righteous indignation and perhaps an anger toward what is being done. I don't know if I've shared this story before in this series, but on the night that I proposed to my wife, we, uh, I proposed, she said yes, obviously, and we went out to see a movie. We were living in Nashville, Tennessee. We went and saw this movie, and after it was over, it was a full theater. People were packed in the whole place. And so we exited through the exits that are at the front of each theater so that we came out on the back of the movie theater along with a few other people. And Sarah and I were walking slowly and trying to walk alone and get away from the crowd. And as we were passing some cars, we saw two very large men forcing a girl into the back seat of a car and she was screaming and kicking and didn't want anything to do with it. Well, perhaps because I had just proposed to Sarah, perhaps because of the anger that was swelling up inside of me that at an injustice that seemed to be happening in front of my eyes, I stopped, turned around with Sarah in Sarah's hand in mine and said to these guys, stop. And one of the guys walked toward me and reached his hand behind his back as though he had a gun. And I thought this could be it. I might die here tonight for all I know, or at least get beat up, but I am not going to walk away when a clear violation of this girl's freedom and an injustice seems to be happening. And I said, let her go. Believe it or not, they let her go. And she ran off and they got in the car and drove off. Now, I know that story makes me look pretty good. <laughs> That's not, I, I don't know that I would always react that way. I would hope that I would, but that is one of the few heroic things perhaps that has happened in my life. And had they chosen to engage with me physically, I don't think I would have stood a chance. Nevertheless, uh, I know what it's like. And I think you know what it's like, even if passively from watching films to have this anger at something that seems unjust. And especially if you have a sense of loyalty toward someone to whom the uh, injustice is happening. You know, Jonathan Pritchett is a close friend of mine. I host Trinity Radio with him. And Jonathan is one of the most loyal human beings that I know. And I'm proud to call him a friend, partly for that reason. He, um, if he thinks that someone is acting unjustly toward me or maligning my character, he will come unglued to defend me. And perhaps sometimes Jonathan would be willing to overreact in my defense. In his case, I know that that comes from a good place, and I really, really appreciate that sense of loyalty. We all know what that's like to a certain degree. So when you see an injustice happening to someone that you love, how do you react? Do you uh, underreact, like I think Jacob's going to in this story, or overreact, like I think that uh, Jacob's sons do? Let's begin now in Genesis chapter 34 and verse 1 as we take a look at what happens to Dinah, who is Jacob and Leah's daughter. It says, now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. So they've come to this new place and they're going to go in as she wants to go in and meet some of the other young ladies. That makes a lot of sense. When Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her and raped her. But he was deeply attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. Now notice something that's very interesting here. It says that he took her and raped her, but then it says that he deeply loved her and spoke tenderly to her. That's an odd combination of phrases, isn't it? Well, we're going to come back to that in just a few moments. I just don't want you to miss that. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, get me this young woman as a wife. Now, Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob said nothing until they came in. So Jacob knew about this 
He knew that someone had, quote unquote, raped Dinah. And I'm not saying that as if to say that she wasn't raped. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But he's aware of this and doesn't do anything or say anything until his sons get back. Well, what's going what's going on there? Well, it seems to have been the custom of the time uh, when the sons are of a particular age where they're capable of reasoning, reasoning out possible solutions to family business matters that the father will consult with them. And this is, of course, uh, a helpful thing. I mean, it it allows for the sons to take some ownership in the family to learn how to manage family businesses so that they can run their own families and these sorts of things. Um, and also it gives the father of the family, the head of the household, possibly different perspectives on what's happening so that he can make a wise decision about how to move forward. Now, I want you to notice something that's interesting here. It says in verse five, now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah and his sons were with his livestock. Now, this word uh, defiled seems common enough to us. We use it that way. We talk about a woman who's been raped. We might say that she was defiled, but it's not quite the same as the way we use the word. It's the word Talmay, and it is only used in the book of Genesis in relationship to this story. It's, it's used specifically for this story. There's another word that's used in chapter 49, but it's a different word than this Talmay. And um, uh, it's also translated defiled, but it's, it's a different, it has a different sense to it. It means something slightly different, nuanced. This word shows up in Leviticus. The word that's used here with the relationship to this story does show up in Leviticus and in Numbers, and it seems to be specific to ceremonial uncleanness. So this puts a di- this casts a different light on this. It's not as though it's just that they've, they're guilty of doing something wicked to our sister, Dinah. It's rather that they have made her ceremonially unclean in some sense. Now, what that sense is gets complicated and um, whether exactly that's true, uh, how we should view that spiritually or, or with the Old Testament in mind is, is a little difficult too. But that's what they're saying. That's what they're sensing. That's what they're feeling right? Walter Brueggemann says, that is, the woman is not simply taken. She is made ritually unacceptable. It is the elemental passion regarding defilement, which lies behind the outrage and retribution that follows. The shift of images from guilt to defilement makes the issue much more outrageous in the perception of Israel. So obviously later on, when Israel as a nation sees these words, they see defilement and they're seeing something that that evokes in them something, this kind of outrage too. Uh, And that's from Walter Brueggemann's Genesis interpretation of Bible commentary for teaching and preaching. Now, another thing that we want to consider. So we see now that this is this is an outrage that we can connect with, but it it also has roots in something that's beyond just the guilt of what's being done, but a ceremonial uncleanness that's being perceived on the part of these brothers. Now, ultimately, Jacob doesn't do anything. You know, I said that it is kind of the practice, it seems, of the people of the time that you would include the brothers or or rather the sons um, if they're old enough in these discussions about what to do, but we would expect Jacob to be enraged by this. We would expect Jacob to, to, uh, you know, run out there and kick the door down. I mean, fathers as a man who has two daughters, fathers are very protective of their daughters. And, um, I'm sure that fathers are protective of their sons too, but there's just something about that relationship. And Jacob does nothing. It does seem like here and later, he kind of underreacts. And one thing that might be unfair for us to mention to Jacob, um, but I think it has to be on the table, is Dinah is Leah's daughter, 
Jacob's daughter, but Jacob's daughter with Leah, it makes us wonder a bit, what if this had been a daughter of Rachel? Because we know the dynamic there, that Rachel is the true one that gets his heart thumping, the real love of his life. Would he have reacted differently if it had been a daughter of Rachel? We don't really know, but it deserves mentioning that relationship there. All right, let's keep let's keep trucking and see what else it says here. In verse six, it says, Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. Now, the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard about it, and the men were grieved and they were very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter for such a thing ought not to be done. But Hamor, see, now we're getting this seeming, this, you know, the reaction we might expect. And, you know, when you have an emotional reaction like this, it doesn't mean that it's wrong, that it would enrage you. The thing that we want to talk about, whether there's an overreaction or an underreaction, has to do with what you do with that impulse, right? Um, but Hamor, speaking with them, uh, spoke with him, saying, The soul of my son, Shechem, longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. And intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. So you will live with us and the land shall be open to you. Live and trade in it and acquire property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, let me find favor in your sight. Yeah, good luck. And I will give whatever you tell me. Demand of me uh, ever so much bridal payment and gift. And I will give whatever you tell me, but give me the girl in marriage. All right. Now this is, this is interesting. Now this is, I mean, we're going to get into this, but, but if you're following this, you can see this is odd, right? First off, either Shechem was named after the town or the town was named after Shechem. If you're having trouble following that, it might not be easy to tell. Actually, this is where I'm going to say something that could come across a bit controversial, but I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm just trying to understand the text. Remember how I noted a minute ago that it said that he raped her, but then it also said that he deeply loved her and he spoke tenderly to her and all these kind of things. That seems like a strange contrast. Um, it may be just what it sounds like. The, NI, the NASB translates this, whatever he did with Dinah, as rape. The more literal translation is to lay with by force to lay with by force. Now, later on in the story, she is still in Shechem's house. So there's kind of two ways of seeing this. I'm just presenting them both to you. We're going to go with the notion that she was raped. Most of the commentators go with that. Now, that's what it, that's how it reads, at least in some translations, that this was a rape. Most pastors presume it was a rape. To lay with by force still sounds like rape. But thinking of the strange phrasing of that a moment ago, I, I at least want to explore this possibility. Um, and, and we also have to explore why why Shechem presumes, seems to presume that he can find favor in the sight of Jacob and the brothers. Um, so there's two ways of seeing this. Either she went to visit the young women of the city and was abducted by Shechem. That's what it sounds like. He took her and lay with her by force. Or while visiting the young women, she ends up at Shechem's house and lays with him. Perhaps he seduces her. Uh, because she wanted and, and she gave in willingly. Um, I'm not, I'm just suggesting this as a possibility, but then isn't allowed to leave, which would be by force. That's one way of understanding this. 
Um, why, why? Now, you might think it's inappropriate for me to even speak of this as as though it might not be best understood as just rape. I mean, why are you even bringing this up, especially in the culture we live in today? Why are you bringing this up? Well, first of all, we're not in the culture. The story didn't take place in the culture we're living in today. And so I'm trying to trying to understand the story on its own grounds and on its own merits. But um, it's, it's the thing that's strange about this. The only reason I mentioned the possibility is because Shechem talks about loving her, talking, speaking tenderly to her and his soul longs for her. And it seems like maybe he expects she might feel the same. Whereas rape would have been a criminal act out of mere lust. He's even referred to. Now, this is another piece of this. He's referred to in verse 19 as a respected man. And the word that is translated respected can be translated also as honorable. And he's said to be the most honorable of all the people among him. So while why would the author include that except to point out that this guy has some redeeming qualities, right? There may be some character to this guy after all. Um, I don't know. We're going to take it as rape. We're going to assume this was rape because that's how it does seem to read. And Ultimately, though, I have reservations. I kind of think that is what it's saying. I'm just presenting this and putting it on the table for you to consider so that I can present every option to you. In any case, something wrong has been done. And here the wrongdoers are speaking as though everything's fine. And maybe our families can be one people together. Now, um, the way this strikes us, knowing that some great evil has been done and then these guys come asking for more get let us marry her and hey let's all intermarry and let's just be one people together and i want to find favor in your sight and all these kind of things it it if you've ever experienced something like that you know i i had um i've mentioned jonathan pritchett and how loyal he is and what a good friend he is but um at a certain point in my life after i married and grew up i moved to an area that was close to where one of my childhood friends lived and i hadn't seen this friend since i was probably 11 years old and so uh, we connected again and we became friends and our wives hung out and we hung out. And for about a year, it was just great relationship. And I felt like I had a real brother in him. Um, at some point, long story short, uh, there was a, I, I feel like this friend greatly betrayed me in some way. And I don't anger easily. I don't, uh, a lot rolls off my back. So without going into the details, that's, that's how I, uh, viewed the situation, understood the situation. And he, and so we didn't speak for a couple of months. He reached out to me and said, Hey, let's talk. So we met and we were going to talk about this. And I thought, Hey, he's going to, whether he's going to apologize or not, he's going to try to extend an olive branch. When we met, he acted as though nothing had happened. And it was like, we're, we're supposed to be hunky dory um, without resolving any of this. Now, Maybe the right thing for me to do there is just to forgive him, maybe to ignore it. But it was a pretty deep betrayal without telling you exactly what happened. The, the feeling, whatever you think about that, the feeling that I had in that moment, I think is something akin to what we see here. A deep betrayal has happened. A, a great evil has been done. And you want to act like there's no problem here. That's a weird emotion that it evokes inside of you because the feeling is here's the feeling. And this is kind of the theme for this whole passage is no, 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 wait a minute. There's justice that needs to be done. Something has to be done to right this wrong. Verse 13 says, but Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamor 
with deceit. Now, I want you to notice it says with deceit because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to, him, to uh, they said to them, we cannot do this thing. That is, give our sister to a man who is uncircumcised. Now, we expect him to say to a man who rapes other people's sisters. That's not what he says. He says, we can't we can't give our sister to a man who is uncircumcised for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we consent to you if you will become like us in that every male of you will be circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters for ourselves and we will live with you and become one people. And if you do not listen to us to be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and go. Now, this is interesting. The thing that's difficult about, first of all, this is obviously a deceitful military strategy, as we're going to see unfold in just a moment. And if you've never read this story before, this th- there's a cleverness in this. There's a strategy here. There is, maybe not at the time, but from our perspective, maybe some humor in this. Um, I'm not ashamed to say. But what's but there are some some quandaries we have before we get to that point. This is interesting because it tells us that they answered with deceit. And it could have been deceptive if they gave the impression that all you've got to do to be appropriate for us to intermarry with you is just to get circumcised, just this physical act of circumcision. That's all that's necessary. Um, that, if that's what they told them, then, then that would be deceitful. Uh, that would be like telling someone all you have to do is just get baptized. You don't have to actually you know, commit your life to Christ, repent of your sins, trust in Jesus, those sorts of things. Just this one outward act and we'll be good. Go back to worshiping Molech or whatever God you worship, right? Um, if So that would be deceitful. But if it is the case that what these guys actually presented to them was, yeah, you got to get circumcised, but but the telling of this in scripture is just emblematic of you've got to embrace our religion. Okay, well, in such a case, it, that would not be inconsistent with what God told Abraham in Genesis 17 about the circumcision of non-Jews. We have that established as a, as a, as a thing that happens. And at this point, we've got all these sons who are going to need to marry somewhere, and this daughter who's going to marry somewhere, and there aren't any Jews around. So perhaps Jacob's already thinking this is going to happen at some point, that people will embrace our religion, embrace the worship of Yahweh, and maybe we can intermarry with them, despite where God told him to go and what to do. Um, th- this may be what he's already thinking. And it, and so so whatever the case may be, even though if, if what they're saying to them is by get circumcised is embrace Yahweh worship and embrace our religion, their heart isn't, this is not in good faith anyway. This is simply meant as a trick, as a part of a military strategy. And so it's with the wrong motives and with an eye toward doing evil to the people of this area. All right, so let's keep trucking. It says in verse 18, now their words seemed reasonable to Hamor and Shechem. They wouldn't have seemed reasonable to me if I didn't know what was up. I mean, well, let me let me save my comments. Um, the young man did not delay to do this because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. Now, he was more respected than all the household of his father. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the people of their city. Now, the gate of the city is where you would come and do business. Um, You'll see that in the Bible plenty of times. Uh, The Proverbs 31 woman, her husband goes and sits at the gates of the city. Now, this is where the business transactions took place and the big serious discussions, right? Um, 
uh, it came to the city saying, verse 21, these men are friendly to us. Therefore, let them live in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. We will take their daughters in marriage and give our daughters to them. Only on this condition will the men consent to us to live with us, to become one people, that every male among us be circumcised, just as they are circumcised. Now, uh, well, let me go ahead and finish. Will their livestock and their property and all their animals not be ours? Let's just consent to them and they will live with us. All who went out of the gate of the city listened to Hamar and to his son Shechem and every male was circumcised. All who went out of the gate of the city. Now, notice that um, a couple of things. First of all, he really loves Dinah. I mean, Shechem, I mean, I don't know if it's like a pure love, right? If he raped her, we're not imagining that. But of course, that's part of the problem with the interpretation of what's exactly going on here between Dinah and Shechem. Uh, we won't go back to that, but I mean, he must really be captivated by Dinah that he's willing to get circumcised for her. Um, and now he comes back to these guys and he's saying to these guys, hey, uh, let's let's all get circumcised. Now, he's the one with, oh man, I almost said with skin in the game. <laughs> he's the one who is really interested in this, right? He's the one who's already got his eye on a particular woman. So how's he going to get all these guys to get on board? Well, it may well be that just because they were the ruling people that, that these guys didn't really have much of a choice. Or it may be that that's why he kind of, I don't know, uh, bribes them a bit by telling them what they're going to get. He's like, look, all their animals and livestock and all their stuff is going to be ours, right? So this is worth it. So let's intermarry with them. We get all this stuff. Now, um, that also tells you that Notice how much stuff Jacob's got. Jacob, we know, knows what he's doing when it comes to livestock. And it sounds like here he's got a lot of stuff, right? That they would see that and say, man, that's a lot of stuff. We as a community want that stuff. So uh, so this is interesting. But man, just 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 think about what that means for an adult man to be circumcised. Even today is a painful process. There are people that protest circumcision in our nation. Um and perhaps in your nation, wherever you're at, uh, this, this is a, this is a painful thing. And, um, it's probably a painful thing for babies, right? They just don't remember to tell us about it. Right. But, but this is a painful, painful thing. And these men are agreeing to do this. I mean, this is where this is kind of as a military strategy, humorous, although also shocking. And you can see why I said this is mature audiences only maybe. All right, let's look at verse 25. Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain that two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city undetected and killed every male. Now, uh, notice that on the third day, they're still in pain. That's how painful it was. And back then they didn't have any anesthetic, right? Or it was very meager um, anesthesia, right? I don't know, drink some alcohol. I, I don't know what the anesthesia is. Um, but, but they, they are still in pain three days later. And when, when you, when you think about these two guys coming and slaying all of these, all of these men, you might think, well, yeah, but I still don't know if I buy that exactly. Because I mean, even if you're in pain and you're a man and you're in pain in that region to that degree, the fact still remains that all those men, two guys just wandering around the city, killing everybody you don't think that some of these guys could push through it and, and kill two guys. I mean, come on. Uh, so, um, it may be that that's exactly what happened, but I don't think it's necessary to think of it that way. 
it mentions Simeon and um, it, it, men- it mentions uh, who is it? Simeon and um, Levi, because these are the guys, these are the sons, but these sons would have had servants underneath them and they could have easily led the charge of their servants in bringing this attack. But it was uh, Simeon and Levi who were basically in charge here. They were the ones who would be blameworthy as they are the commanders of this sort of a thing. So there's a possibility. Um, all right, so let's continue. Verse 26, they killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. Because remember, she's still there. Dinah's still there at Shechem's house. Jacob's sons came upon those killed and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, their herds, and their donkeys, and that which was in the city and that which was in the field. And they captured and looted all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, even everything that was in the house. Overboard. Then... Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me repulsive among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since my men are few in number, they will band together against me and attack me and I will be destroyed. I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Now, um, about this, Victor Hamilton in Genesis and Evangelical Commentary on the Bible says, Uh, Jacob protests the excesses of their retaliation, but his sons defend their actions as noble. A A vigilante mentality always insists that the answer to violence is more violence. Jacob himself has been set free from such a mindset. So there's a positive way of thinking about Jacob here. He's taken a new name. He has his identity in God now. But at the same time, while this was an overreaction on their part, It was an underreaction on Jacob's part. Jacob doesn't do anything initially. His sons make this decision. His sons plot this plot and carry it out. He didn't do anything. It's kind of like um, when you think later on in the Bible, when, um, when David has problems with his children and he doesn't resolve the issue, his kingdom never has the sheen on it that it once had. He's lost his moral authority because he didn't took action. And because of that, his children fell into a series of horrible sins against each other. And so we look at this and we say, why didn't he react? Now, he does act later. He brings some sense of justice on his sons. Um, Notice also his reasons before we get to that. Notice his reasons why he's against this. It's not that you've done this wicked thing and killed all these people. It's that now they're going to come after us. Now they're going to kill me. What have you done? Right. You've messed up my reputation in this community, which might be an important thing practically to keep in mind, but it shouldn't be the driving force in why you're concerned about this. But in Genesis 49, later on, Jacob denies these guys their inheritance because of probably this. Um, And because of that, Judah receives the birthright. Now. Throughout all of this, we see an underreaction, an overreaction. But the thing that stands behind all of this is a desire for perfect and appropriate justice. When I get up in the morning and walk, I like to get up and walk. And um, I listen, I read, uh, I listen to a lot of books and I read a lot of books uh, throughout the day. I, I, I listen on my phone. I, I let the, the, the automatic voice that reads electronically read books for me. And I do that sometimes when I'm walking in the morning. But if I'm having trouble waking up, sometimes I'll listen to a true crime 
podcast. I don't know if you ever listen to true crime. You might think it's wrong for me to listen to true crime. And I'm sympathetic to that. I, I like to listen to these stories about a murder or someone's gone missing and the police are trying to figure out exactly what happened. And it kind of scratches that itch of wanting to be kind of a detective of sorts and figure out what happened. At the same time, I've been bothered at times when listening to that about, well, I'm kind of taking entertainment from something that really happened to some real people that God really loves. So I thought to myself, why is it that I'm interested in true crime stories? Why is it that so many people are interested in true crime stories and 48 hours mystery and unsolved mysteries and those kind of things? And it occurs to me that it's not just that we're fascinated by evil, although there's a part of us that might be. Really, what I think it comes down to is innately, we all have a sense and a desire for justice in this world. We see something that's happened that's wrong and somebody's getting away with it, and that's not right. Justice needs to be done. And so what drives us to be that detective as we listen to a story like that, to try to put the pieces together is because we want that. Things aren't right until that justice is brought. And uh, we have that drive. Well, the great thing about it is if you're a believer, God will have his justice. God would have brought justice to Shechem. He might have brought it through uh, Jacob's sons. He might not have. But God will bring everything ultimately to perfect justice. And we can rest assured about that. You don't have that if there is no God. I mean, you know, uh, if Adolf Hitler uh, killed himself and got away with it. If some criminal murdered someone and lived a long life and then later died and was never brought to justice and there's no God, then in some sense, justice was never done. But if there is a God and there is an afterlife, there is justice. And in fact, I'll just close you with this apologetic point, and it might not count for much with you, but if you believe there is a God and you're not sure about anything else, I think to a certain degree, you can get to the realization that there must be an afterlife if there is a God. How do you get there? Well, think about this. If there is a God who has given us this sense of justice and the need for justice, seems like that God wanted us to have that. Seems like it reflects something about God's nature, that the creatures he created have this longing for justice. And since we know that justice isn't ultimately done in this world for the abuser or for the abused, it's not a huge leap in logic to assume that that God will bring justice after that death, which entails some sort of an afterlife for the abused and the abuser. An interesting thought. In any case, I know that that afterlife is real. I know that my faith is founded on fact, and I trust that this is the one true God and the God who later in the story of the Bible became incarnate as Jesus. I look forward to the rest of our study through the book of Genesis, and I hope this one has been a blessing to you.